this morning's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask you this morning uh, to be with us, to meet with us. Your word says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned and we have no access to them. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to give us the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the meaning of life? Sorry if I gave you mental whiplash. I know it's early on a Sunday, but let me ask you again. What is the meaning of life? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you that question? There's a long history of answers uh, because people have always wanted to know. Maybe now that I mention it, you want to know, and so you're scrambling for your phone, you're going to ask Siri. Well, let me save you the trouble. Siri, what's the meaning of life? I don't know, but I think there's an app for that. (laughs) Siri, what's the meaning of life? I can't answer that now, but give me some time to write a very long play in which nothing happens. Siri, what's the meaning of life? All the evidence points to chocolate. Siri, what's the meaning of life? I give up. Monty Python produced a whole movie to answer just that one question, and their conclusion was this. Well, it's nothing very special. Uh, Try and be nice to people. Avoid eating fat. Read a good book every now and then, get some walking in, try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. In The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams imagines a supercomputer called Deep Thought. Deep Thought takes 7.5 million years to produce an answer to the meaning of the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. What's the answer? 42. Lots of people have speculated why the answer is 42. They say 42, it must be 42 because 42 is 10, 10, 10 in binary code. Or light refracts through the surface of water by precisely 42 degrees to produce a rainbow. Or light crosses the diameter of a proton in 1 over 10 to the 42 seconds. Douglas Adams himself says the reason for 42 was very simple. 
It was a joke. (laughs) For Monty Python, Siri, Douglas Adams, the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life, is a joke. And that in itself is very telling. Why is it a joke? Well, firstly, because we just don't have an answer to that question. And secondly, not knowing, not having an answer, is very scary and somewhat depressing. And so the jokes are a defense mechanism. They protect us from the awful truth that life might just not have any meaning at all. German philosopher Martin Heidegger said it like this, If God, as the ground and goal of all reality, is dead, then nothing more remains to which man can cling and by which he can orient himself. If God is dead and life has no meaning, then I have no meaning. And that is a terrifying truth. I need to protect myself from that truth. And one defense mechanism is to joke. Let's pretend it's not all that serious. Another is to desperately scratch around and define our own meaning, come up with our own meaning for life. So there was a study done amongst South African university students asking them our question, what is the meaning of life? 16% says life has no meaning at all. Another 60% said they were confused, utterly confused about the meaning of life. The remaining 23% came up with one of these three answers. First, Meaning is found in contributing to something beyond yourself. Second, meaning is found in relationships and education. Third, meaning is described by African metaphors like Ubuntu or Batupile. That's how ordinary people like you and me deal with this crisis. That's how we cope. Those are the answers we come up with. I'm going to become the very best version of myself. Education. I'm going to give back and benefit others. Batupile, Ubuntu. I'm going to enjoy every moment. Happiness. Just some examples. Think about it long enough, and we discover that there is a very real problem with coming up with your own meaning to life. A problem that the ancients knew all about. In fact, they gave it a name. They said, Memento mori, memento mori, remember death. When I die, the meaning I've created for life dies with me. It's as if my meaning for life never existed. And maybe that's why 60% of our students are confused about the meaning of life. Maybe intuitively they recognize that death makes life absurd. And so actually... The jokes are all we have. It's all we've got. Unless, of course, God is not dead. You'll remember the church at Corinth had been trying to define the meaning of life for themselves, how to live it through their own wisdom. And in the first part of his letter, the ground we've covered already, Paul has been exposing their wisdom as folly. He says, worldly wisdom will die with those who trust in it. But he doesn't leave the Corinthians without any hope. Look at how our passage starts this morning. So if you have your Bible on your phone or or with you, 
hard copy, just have a look there. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6. Remember, he's been saying, worldly wisdom will die with those who trust in it. And then verse 6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. There is meaning, says Paul. There is wisdom to access the meaning. Only it's just not the wisdom of this world. And so in our passage, Paul answers three very simple questions. What is the wisdom of God? How do you get it? And who gets it? What is the wisdom of God? How do you get it? And who gets it? What, how, and who? What is the wisdom of God? Remember from last week, uh, I hope you took this away with you last week, or you can just have a look at chapter 1, verse 23 and 24. It's as plain as day. The wisdom of God is Christ crucified. But what does that mean? Well, let's look at our passage, verses 6 and 7, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now just look at those verses. Look at them. What can we say in answer to the question, what is the wisdom of God? Well, the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of this age. That much is clear. It's not conventional wisdom. It's not the latest fad or theory. You can't pick it up at exclusive books. The wisdom of God was decreed by God in eternity before time. It is divine. It is timeless. And it has been hidden from human pride. And finally, and this is the absolutely mind-blowing part, the wisdom of God is for our, for our glory. That's what it says. The wisdom of God is for our glory. Our glory is the end goal of God's wisdom. The end goal of Christ crucified is our glory. We got a hint of this back in chapter 1 verse 29. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. At the cross, Christ suffered all that is wrong with this world so that we might be made right with God. He was declared unholy so that we might be considered holy. He became a slave to sin and death so that we might be set free. The Lord of glory was shamed. He endured ultimate shame and humiliation for our glory. God's secret, hidden, eternal plan, his wisdom, was to use the deepest human evil ever perpetrated for the highest human good. That's what the cross is. And it's the key to the meaning of life. It tells us what the meaning of life is. God planned the cross in eternity for our glory. And our glory is to enter into and enjoy God's glory. Our glory is to reflect the glory of God. His purity, His perfection, His beauty, His generosity, His power, His fatherly love. 
And so the Westminster Confession is not far wrong when it says the meaning of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The meaning of life is God's glory and our share in that glory. He invites us into His glory. I mean, it's staggering when you stop to think about it. It's why Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's beyond our comprehension. Just think about it for a second with me. God has organized all of space and time for your ultimate good. And your ultimate good is to enjoy his goodness like a child enjoys her father's goodness. Now, when we, attri- when we try and arrive at the meaning of life on our own, we actually come up with some pretty good things. I mean, I don't know what you thought of that, uh, that survey that I mentioned, the African, South African students. I thought they came with, with some reasonable answers. Problem is, we very quickly discover how elusive these things are. It's like trying to hold water in your hand. I mean, just take one we, we might all be inclined to agree with. Relationships. Batopile. Ubuntu. Even if we believe relationships are the meaning of life, two things are constantly robbing them of their meaning. Sin and death. Sin, mean that our rela- sin means that our relationship... Our relationships, they just keep breaking down. They're in a perpetual state of disrepair. And death means that they break down permanently. So how can Ubuntu be the meaning of life if ultimately there is no Ubuntu? If our Ubuntu is not sustainable? If sin and death keep robbing us of our Ubuntu, how can that be the meaning of life? But... Once we have a relationship with God through the cross of Christ, our relationships with each other are built on a new foundation. And it's a sure foundation. It's a secure foundation. It's a sustainable foundation. It will endure. Sin is conquered by the promise of healing and forgiveness. And so every breakdown in relationship can be repaired. Death is conquered by the certain hope of resurrection. So that after death, our relationships will never break down again, ever. You see, with God at the center, Ubuntu takes on a meaning, a depth of meaning and reality that we never could have imagined. And the same is true for the other options for meaning that we try and carve out for ourselves. Same is true. Happiness, social justice, peace, making a difference. None of them are sustainable in and of themselves. They, all of them, every single one, only finds its meaning in ultimate meaning. In the love of God through the cross of Christ. That is the only place where they are secure. Where they ultimately amount to anything. Otherwise, they are constantly being snatched away from us by sin and death. What is wisdom? The cross of Christ. The cross is the key that unlocks the meaning of life. And the meaning of life is to be with God 
in his glory and enjoy him forever. And that can start now. Amen. Go for it. How do we get this wisdom? Well, verse 9 again. Listen to those words. No eye has seen, no ear heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So Paul rejects the usual Corinthian methods for accessing wisdom. Rejects them out of hand. You can't see or hear this wisdom. You can't access it through your senses. Signs, remember the Jews wanted signs. Signs are out. Empirical research is out. You can't access wisdom through sense experience. You also can't imagine it. You can't get there through reason, through intuition, through mysticism, through soul searching or future casting or scenario planning. You just can't access it. None of those things allow you access to the wisdom of God. So how do we get it? Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Paul can't be any clearer, can he? He can't be any clearer. God's wisdom comes from God himself through his Spirit. It's the only way. And it's a gift. It's grace. You can't get it for yourself. You can't earn it. You can't acquire it. You can't deserve it. The free gift of the Son is the objective reality of our salvation. There it is, concrete, in history, a concrete historical truth. The free gift of the Spirit is the subjective reality of our salvation. What share do we have in something that happened 2,000 years ago, thousands of kilometers from us, worlds away in terms of culture? What share do we have in that? Well, it comes to us through God's Spirit. And it's the only way. It's how the Father's gift of His Son comes to you, to me, personally, through His Spirit. So your union with Jesus and your understanding of Jesus, both of them come to you through the Spirit and only through the Spirit. That's how we get the wisdom of God. How do you get it? Well, God Himself delivers it in person free of charge. Lastly, who gets God's wisdom? Who can access God's wisdom? Who is it that can grasp the meaning of life? Well, it's not the learned person. It's not the PhD Bible scholar. It's not the monk or the hermit or the Dalai Lama. There's only one person who gets access, only one kind of person. Can you think of who that might be? She is what verse 15 calls the spiritual person. Now the spiritual person is not what the Corinthians would have had in mind when they read those words or heard them read out. To them, the spiritual person is someone who can access divine wisdom and power using their own religious or intellectual technique. The philosopher, the mystic, 
That's what they would have had in mind when they hear spiritual person. And the spiritual person is also not what we have in mind when we hear those words. In our culture, a spiritual person is a person with long hair who wears sandals, lives off celery and kale and smoothies. It's the kind of person who burns candles even when there's no load shedding, right? That's the spiritual person. Or the spiritual person is anyone who doesn't have a normal job. So I remember when I told my boss at the treasury that I was leaving uh, that world to, to go into ministry full-time, she said to me, no, that's wonderful. I've got a cousin down in the Eastern Cape who's a Sangoma. <laughs> in her mind, it's exactly the same thing. We're both spiritual people. But Paul has something else in mind. Look at verse 12 again. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The spiritual person is someone who has, anyone, anyone who has received the Spirit of God. But who gets to receive the Spirit of God? Who qualifies? Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. These were verses we covered last week, but we didn't dwell on them in any sort of detail. So have a look there. It really helps us in answering this question. Who qualifies to receive the Spirit of God? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Those who receive the Spirit are those who God calls. And those who God calls are, what does it say? The foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised. Now the only thing that I can think of that unites that group is that they are undeserving. And that's the very first thing the Spirit helps us to understand, isn't it? We don't deserve Him. And we never could. What does Paul say in chapter 2, verse 12? Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us. The things freely given to us. The understanding itself is freely given. The Spirit Himself is freely given. The crucified Lord of glory is freely given. Your inclusion, my inclusion in the Father's plan of salvation is freely given. Everything God gives is given freely to those who don't deserve it. And that's why the natural person in verse 14 cannot accept the wisdom of God wants nothing to do with the wisdom of God, can't even begin to understand the wisdom of God. It's foolish. It's stupid. Don't you know that you earn things in this life? We think we deserve it. We think we must deserve it. We can deserve it. And we do. Look at my CV. That's the wisdom of the world. It has nothing but scorn for the wisdom of God. For the grace of God. 
Now, how do you know if you're a natural person or a spiritual person? Simple test. Do you deserve, think about your life. Think about your life for a moment. Do you deserve what God has given you? Perhaps you deserve better. Do you deserve better? If the answer is yes to either of those questions, you're a natural person. Or perhaps it's more charitable to say, more accurate to say, perhaps, that you're thinking like a natural person. God alone knows. If you answered no, I don't deserve better, how could I? I don't even deserve what he's given me. Well, you'd be right for at least two reasons. First, Paul goes on in Corinthians to ask them in chapter 4, what do you have that God hasn't given you? You see, it's all his to begin with anyway. None of it is ours. He's given us our very lives, the breath in our lungs. Our existence in this moment right now is upheld by God. And that's the only source of its existence. We have no claim to any of it. It has to be a gift because it's his to begin with. And you can't deserve a gift. You can only deserve a wage. You can only deserve something we, you are entitled to. How are you entitled to your existence? God gave it to you. Freely. Secondly, Let's take a moment just to think about what it is he's given us. Because he's given us even more than our own existence, believe it or not. The Son of God died for you. The Spirit of God, who knows the mind of God, has made his home with you. So that the Father can share his plan with you. His plan for your glory. How on this good earth could we ever deserve that? But here is the intoxicating madness of sin. We actually think in our natural state, we think we do. And it takes a miracle of God to actually show us the truth. The Father planning, the Son executing, the Spirit revealing. And when that happens, when God acts, when God moves in that way, we have the very mind of Christ. So that like C.S. Lewis, we can say, I believe in Christianity like I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. Now, I love that quote because I think it describes what I felt like when I first became a Christian. I was at university and every lecture I went to, which admittedly wasn't many, but the few I went to, they all had a different answer. They all had a different answer to what is wrong with the world. Okay, every lecture had a different answer. Politics, in politics, it was the colonialists. In economics, it was the rent seekers. In philosophy, it was either the Marxists or the capitalists, depending on who your professor was. I mean, it was deeply confusing and unsatisfying. And then I heard someone preach the gospel. And I heard something entirely different. Because in the lecture halls, the problem was always with this group, or this group, or this group. 
You see? And if we can just deal with this group, if we can educate them or incarcerate them or do away with them in some way, then the problem would be solved. But in that little church off Dorp Street, the preacher said that the problem out there starts in here. And suddenly, the Spirit of God opened my eyes to the truth so that for the first time I could see everything clearly. And I could see why the world was such a mess. And I could see my part in that mess. And I could see that the problem was so much wider and deeper than I could ever have imagined. And I could see that we had made such a mess that only God himself could fix this mess. And when I heard that he had fixed it, and how he had fixed it, and that he had fixed it for me, well, what choice did I have? I could only surrender and worship. It wasn't anything special or fancy. It was just the plain preaching of Christ crucified. But in the power of the Spirit, I could see it. And by it, I could see everything else. Even the meaning of life. And I know that's true for many of you here this morning as well. So let's just sum it up. What is the wisdom of God? Christ crucified. How do we get it? From the Holy Spirit. And only from the Holy Spirit. Who gets it? Anyone God has called. And he doesn't call the deserving. In closing, I want, to talk, uh, I want to talk with you about you. And just you. I'm not really interested in the guy next to you. I want to talk to you. I don't know what you think of yourself, but here's what God thinks of you. God the Father had you in his mind before the beginning of time. And God the Son had you in his mind when he was hanging from that cross. And God the Spirit comes to give you the mind of the Father and the Son. And all of it because he wants you to be with him in his glory forever. And that, my friends is the meaning of life. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you that you would give us yourself so freely. Your grace reminds us of how little we deserve and yet how much you love us. Please, Spirit of God, lead us deeper into the wisdom of God, into the truth of the cross, so that we can live for your glory even now. In Jesus' precious name we pray these things. Amen.